Today's scripture reading is from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 2 to 20, which can be found on page 785 of your pew Bibles. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. He hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his, out, for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your own circumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come about around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? a metal image, a teacher of flies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's word. 
invite you to keep your Bibles open to the book of Habakkuk. And let's take a moment to pray together before we look into the Lord's Word. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, a God who has not remained hidden, but who has instead revealed himself through your word and ultimately in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we see him this morning. May we hear from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have little children or spend any amount of time with little children, then you know that making a promise to a child is dangerous territory. Uh, For starters, children have a tendency to hear what they want to hear in your promise and not necessarily what you actually said to them. Uh, I promised one of my girls a a while back that I would play a game with them. And what she heard was that I had cleared my schedule to do nothing other than play games with her the entire rest of the afternoon. Which is great and lots of fun, but not what I actually said. And then there's the problem of timing and expectation when it comes to making a promise to a child. And the worst for us is when we're out running errands and and the kids ask if we're going home soon. And, And when I say, yes, we will be home soon, what they have in mind is that any minute now we're going to come around the corner and into the drive. But what I mean by that is we've only got three more stops to make. We will be home soon. And, and so they might understand the promise very clearly that we're going home, but their expectation about when that's going to be fulfilled might be a little bit off, right? Uh, they don't understand the big picture, what it actually takes to get home. And I'm not answering their promise, my promise on their timetable. Well, the God whom we worship, the God who reveals himself in Scripture, is a God who makes promises to his children. The Bible is full of the Lord's promises. We celebrated his promise to send his Messiah with the candle lighting a few moments ago. But sometimes when we encounter God's promises... We hear what we want to hear more than what he actually says. We may find ourselves in a difficult situation, struggling with sickness or stress or or people taking advantage of us or just the world kind of falling apart around us. We talked last week about how the joy and festivity of the Christmas season sometimes feels out of touch with reality when we live in a broken world where things don't always work the way that they're supposed to. And so we're, we're in that situation, and then we see God's promise to be with us, to never leave or forsake us. And what we hear in that promise is that he's going to get us out of this mess. He's going to fix my situation for me, which might not be what he's actually saying in that promise. Or we hear him very clearly, for instance, a promise to take this mess and make all things new, Revelation 21, so we might understand the promise but still end up frustrated 
and disappointed because it doesn't happen on our timetable. We don't see how this mess can fit into his plan or what it actually takes to get there, how and when God's going to make all things new. But that doesn't mean just because we're disappointed in the timing, that doesn't mean God's not keeping his word. And the Advent season is a good reminder that we can trust God to keep his promises. He will do what he says. Even when we don't understand what he's doing or when he's going to do it. And one of the ways that he helps us to learn to trust him in those kinds of situations is by giving us a glimpse of the end, giving us a snapshot of where we're going, of what the future holds, what the fulfillment of his promises will one day look like. And that's what we find in the second chapter of Habakkuk. Now, we introduced Habakkuk last Sunday. This is not your traditional Christmas book. Uh, We don't often run to this small, minor prophet in the Old Testament at Advent, though I think it fits very well with the heart of the Advent season. Advent is a time of waiting and hoping. It's a time of recognizing that we still live in a fallen world and lamenting the wrongs that we see in the world and longing for those wrongs to be made right. Longing ultimately for God to answer by sending his son, Jesus. And we find that exact same posture of lament and hopeful expectation in this book. Even uh, a posture that points us forward to Christ. And as we saw last week, the first couple of chapters are, are formed in the shape of a dialogue between God and the prophet Habakkuk. It's kind of this back and forth conversation. Habakkuk, who was a, a prophet serving among Judah, which was the, the southern of the two tribes of Israel, um, about the 7th century before Christ, Habakkuk goes to God in lament, uh, crying out over the injustice that he sees prevailing among God's own people, Judah. And what frustrates him even more is not just the injustice that he sees, but the sense that God doesn't seem to care. And so he brings this cry to the Lord. So the law is paralyzed. Israel's covenant with God is broken. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk sees this situation and he cries out to God to understand it and to do something about it. Well, God answers that first cry in verses 5 through 11. uh, But as we saw last week, it was in a completely unexpected way. He promised to deal with injustice in Judah by sending the most violent, unjust nation in the ancient world to destroy them. Not exactly the answer Habakkuk was looking for. And and it honestly doesn't make sense to him. It feels like the cure is worse than the disease. And so he brings a second complaint to God. He asks him essentially, what in the world are you thinking? How does this make sense of your righteousness and your promises? He gets the fact 
that God has ordained Babylon as a judgment on Judah. He understands that this is what he promised he would do, clear back in the covenant in Deuteronomy. But doesn't that mean that injustice and evil are still winning? I mean, what about judging Babylon for the wickedness that they're about to do? As he says in verse 17, is, is he then just to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? What do we do when the world is falling apart around us and God doesn't seem to care or even worse, sometimes seems to contribute to that? How do we make sense of that? That's what Habakkuk wants to know. And so we left him uh, standing in chapter 2, verse 1, on his metaphorical watch post, watching and waiting for the Lord's answer to his second complaint with patience and hope that God has yet more to speak and to do. Habakkuk knows that this cannot be the end of the story. Babylon coming and and just wiping out God's people. There must be more to the story. And, And so how will God respond to that second complaint, to that situation of of the world just falling apart literally around God's people. How will he respond to Habakkuk and how will he respond to our cries of lament in our day as we look at a world, as we live in a world and experience a world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to, a world that's often filled with wickedness and evil. Well, as we come to chapter 2, Uh, verses 2 through 20, we see that God answers Habakkuk's second complaint by making a promise. He makes a promise. Not necessarily the promise Habakkuk wants to hear, and not necessarily a promise that he'll fulfill on Habakkuk's timeline. But it is a promise designed by God to fuel faith and hope by giving Habakkuk a picture of the end. A picture of the end. And that promise takes the shape of a vision. So the vision is introduced in verses 2 to 3, and then the result of that vision, what's going to happen because of it, is summarized in verses 4 to 5. And then you have the vision itself in verses 6 through 20, which uh, it's what Habakkuk actually sees, this five-fold taunt This mocking of Babylon for the judgment they will one day receive. And I want to look first at the introduction. So look at verses 2 through 3 with me. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. If you could know today which new startup business coming out of Cambridge would become the next Google or Facebook, if you could know today which one that is, how would that affect the way you invest your money? If you knew what was coming, how would that affect your investment even if that new company all of a sudden 
looked like it was coming apart at the seams. Loses its competitive edge. It reports losses four quarters in a row. It looks like it's time to to ditch your stock. If you knew what would happen in the future with that company, that it would be a success, wouldn't that change how you treat your investment in the present? Knowing what the future holds changes the way we live in the present. It's for that reason God gives Habakkuk a vision of the end, of what the future holds, in order to help him trust and persevere in the present. Because Israel, from where Habakkuk stands, is failing. They are losing. Babylon is still coming. God's immediate answer to his complaint was not to change the plan. He's still sending this nation to judge his unfaithful people, just as he warned he would do clear back in Deuteronomy. But Habakkuk was right to believe that this can't be the end of the story. There's more to come. And so to fuel his faith, to persevere through this coming trial, God gives him a glimpse of what that more to come looks like. He shows him a picture of the end, what's on the other side of this trial right in front of you. Which is different from the first answer he gave back in chapter 1. His first answer, he promised to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe if told. This promise comes for a later time. The vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Or as the NIV puts it, it speaks of the end. It will not prove false. What he's about to reveal to him is about what he'll do in the end. God shows him how it's going to end so he can persevere through the hard days ahead. So so what what does he actually show him? How is it going to end? What is the picture here? Well, again, you kind of have a summary of the vision in verses 4 to 5 before you get to the actual vision itself. So it's kind of like the appetizer, if you will, before the meal, or the abstract before the actual article, which is the vision in 6 through 20. And that summary in verses 4 to 5 happens to contain probably some of the most famous lines in the entire Old Testament. The second half of verse 4, the righteous will live by his faith. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But what God's doing here. He's telling Habakkuk and us what we can expect as a result of this vision, what will happen to Babylon, and what that means for those who remain faithful to God among Judah, the righteous, as Habakkuk puts it. And I want to look first at the prospect of Babylon. What What is God going to do to answer this great injustice? Because that's the bulk of the vision, both in the introduction and what follows in the vision itself. How will God ultimately respond to the injustice we see, the injustice we experience, maybe the injustice we participate in? Uh, How will he respond to that, to wickedness in his earth? Will, Will those who prey on others get away with it? Or will God answer it someday, somehow? And so, looking at verse 4, 
And, and we're going to skip the part that's addressed to God's people and kind of take this chunk together first. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So it's an interesting picture, but, but essentially what he's describing here is a picture of the self-destructive nature of Babylon's greedy appetite. Of Babylon's greedy appetite. The word that's translated soul or desire in verse 4 is the same word that's translated greed or appetite in verse 5. And it can also be translated throat. And so in verse 4, basically the picture is Babylon's throat or their appetite is swollen. It's puffed up. In verse 5, it's a similar picture. He enlarges it like the grave. So it's swollen and ready for all of the swallowing he's going to do back in verse 13, where the wicked swallows up the one more righteous than he, gathering for himself all the nations, collecting for himself all peoples. So his appetite is swollen. It's, it's puffed up and greedy, but it is not upright within him. His appetite may be big, but it's going to betray him. It will not deal justly with him. It'll actually be the cause of his own downfall. Rather than providing the satisfaction and glory he thinks he's going to get by swallowing everything up, he's actually setting himself up for his own judgment. That's the picture. Babylon treats the nations like his food and his drink. You know, his, his appetite swollen. Verse 5, how much more is the wine a traitor? But that food and drink are about to cause the worst case of indigestion in the history of humanity. This is a violent food poisoning as a result of his greedy appetite. That's the picture here that he sets up. And that's what we see in the actual vision, the five taunts that we find in verses 6 through 20. It's this ironic, humiliating fall of Babylon where what they do to others comes back on their own heads. And it's expressed, interestingly, in the form of a taunt of, of this series of five woes to Babylon taken up on the voice, on the lips of their victims. And so the picture is, at the end of time, all of the victims of Babylon gathering around and raising their voices to mock this nation who destroyed them. That's the picture. And there's five of them. The first woe gives us a picture of the self-destructive nature of their continuous theft. They keep stealing from everyone, but that's going to self-destruct. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and loads himself with pledges. So the imagery is basically describing Babylon's pillaging uh, as though they're racking up debt, taking out a loan, leaving a pledge, some sort of guarantee that you're going to pay it back. Uh, another translation puts this, he makes himself rich with loans. But he's not making money by lending. He's making money by, quote, borrowing. 
So, so the idea here is it's taking, it's like taking out a loan for a million dollars and considering yourself a millionaire. By stealing from the nations around them, that's what Babylon is doing. Make themselves rich by just borrowing money, stealing it. But there will come a day when that note will be called by the bank. And the, the nation that's done all of the pillaging and plundering will now be plundered. That's the first woe. There's self-destructive theft. The second woe in verses 9 to 11 shows the foolishness of their false security. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. So, so they plot to steal from others in order to safeguard their kingdom. But in the end, the very house that they build to protect them will bear witness against them. The stones in the walls will cry out against their owners and the woodwork in the beams above will respond. And the fortifier will be demolished. This ironic picture. The third woe, verses 12 to 14, shows how the builder is going to be destroyed. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. So all who, who build their dominion on the backs of others whom they exploit... In the end, all of that labor, all of that toil will simply go up in smoke. There's no way to build a kingdom for yourself through violence and exploitation. It will come back to haunt you. Because there's only one dominion that will reign in the end. There's only one kingdom that's going to prevail over all of the earth, only one person whose glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And it's not America. It's not any ancient nation in history or any other living nation today. It is only the kingdom of the Lord. Only the Lord. The fourth woe, verses 15 to 17, uh, uses pretty graphic imagery to show how Babylon's humiliating and exploiting others will end up humiliating and exploiting them. Their shame is going to come back onto them. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink to gaze at their nakedness. And so it's this graphic picture of basically some low life who spikes a girl's drink at a party to try and take advantage of her later. That's what Babylon's doing. It's gut-wrenching. That's their violence. Uh, and not just to people, but to the lands. It's it's also the imagery of, of stripping the land of Lebanon naked by stealing all of its trees in order to build their kingdom. Babylon exploits others. But, as we saw earlier, verse 5, the wine is a traitor. Just as they forced their cup upon their neighbors, so the Lord will pour out his cup upon them which throughout Scripture is a picture of his wrath, his holy anger against sin and wickedness. And so those who shame others, the shameless, will eventually be shamed. That's the picture. And then finally, the fifth woe in verses 18 to 20, God mocks the utter foolishness of Babylon's idolatry. They're depending upon gods of their own invention instead of the genuine presence of the Lord in his holy temple. 
Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, or to a silent stone, arise, as if to kind of invite the pagan deity to indwell this block of wood that you just carved. Uh, It's silly. It's foolish. There's no life or breath in it. It's empty, hollow, lifeless, and powerless, just like Babylon's religion. But the Lord, the God of Israel, is genuinely and powerfully present in his holy temple. He is God. We are not. And the appropriate response of all humanity before his majesty is silence. A quiet awe and fear over who God is and all of his holiness. Which for Babylon means that they become, they need to become like their idols, speechless and dumb. Silence before God. The idolater will be silenced. And, and that's the picture that God gives Habakkuk of the end. These five taunts, this poetic justice for Babylon, this death by indigestion. And it's a future judgment that actually finds its way into the present for Babylon in that their nation was destroyed less than 70 years later. God fulfilled that word in advance. But it's also a warning not just to an ancient nation that's long been dead and gone. It's a warning to people and nations throughout history who would follow that same self glorifying agenda, the same aim of of my own glory or the same means of of violence and exploitation to get what I want, this is a warning for all those who would think that they can take advantage of others and God won't do anything about it. That's what this warning is. And in fact, in Scripture, Babylon actually becomes representative of of something much bigger than the ancient nation that was once there. It becomes this figurehead for the entire anti-God movement throughout Scripture, from the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to the prostitute in Revelation 17, who comes falling down in Revelation 18. It's much bigger than that one nation. But Habakkuk can take confidence, and we can take confidence with him, that God will bring evil to justice in the end. That's his promise. That's his promise. So what about his promise for his own people? What does the end look like for the people of God? What can the righteous look forward to? That brings us back to chapter 2, verse 4, and those famous lines at the end of that verse few short words that have captured the heart of God's people over the centuries that even find themselves being quoted three times in the New Testament. And not just quoted, but like hanging the whole weight of a letter on these words in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So what exactly is God promising here? Well, first, this promise is for the righteous. And the word righteous in Habakkuk simply refers to those who are faithful to the covenant. Uh, unlike Romans, where, where Paul spends a lot of time t- 
talking about how somebody becomes righteous or in the right with God, namely by faith in Jesus. Habakkuk's not asking the question of how somebody becomes righteous. His question is, will God defend the righteous? That's what he wants to know. Those who are surrounded by the wicked in chapter 1, verse 4, or those who are being swallowed up by the wicked in one thirteen. Will God defend the righteous? And, and here's his promise to the righteous, that the righteous will live. The righteous will live. They will be protected from the coming judgment that's going to be poured out on Babylon. And once again, they will enjoy the blessings of covenant relationship with God. God will not abandon his people. They will enjoy his blessing in his presence forever, in, in a restored kingdom, but ultimately in a heavenly kingdom, a new heavens and new earth. That is our promise for the end. That's what God promises to do for his people, that in the day when Babylon finally falls, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The righteous will live. They will enjoy God's presence, giving glory to him forever. But in what way is that hope of life secured for the righteous? The righteous, it says, will live by his faith. And the word that's translated faith here is often, even more often translated faithfulness. And those ideas of faith and faithfulness really are inseparable in Scripture. To trust God is to be deeply committed to Him. If you, are, if you genuinely believe in God, that will necessarily result in a, a persevering dependence and commitment. And so the means through which that we have this hope of life, that even when our world's falling apart and God promises to deal with justice in the end, the means of hope we have that will be spared from that judgment and enjoy His presence is faithful faith in the Lord, ultimately in Christ. And that's something that you see modeled by Habakkuk himself later in this book. If we take a sneak peek to chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, we see this kind of example of a steadfast dependence on God, even when it makes zero sense at all. So verse 16 of chapter 3, Babylon is still advancing, exile still looms, for Judah, and Habakkuk says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. It's this, basically the picture, he can feel the ground rumbling as Babylon advances, and he's freaking out. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us steadfast faith in the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense of the circumstances. Our God is a God who makes 
promises. He doesn't always promise what we want him to, and he doesn't always answer them on our timetable. Sometimes there are several stops along the way in order to get there that we just can't see. But we can trust him. We can trust him. He will be faithful to answer. And we know this because he has shown us the end, where it's all going. He will be faithful. And in Christmas, he's actually gone a step further. He's taken the end and broken into the present with it. That ancient, that day that ancient Israel longed for when they would finally be delivered from their enemies and their Messiah would reign and everything would finally be right, what Habakkuk and Isaiah and others foresaw, God has begun to accomplish that promise for the end already by sending his son Jesus. So, so through Jesus, the end has come forward to meet us in the present. In part, there's still more to come. The resurrection of the dead, final judgment, new heavens and new earth, that day when there will finally be no sin or sickness or, or suffering, when God wipes away every tear. That's still to come. But through faith in Jesus, we already share in the promised inheritance. We already experience eternal life. We already enjoy the forgiveness of sins, victory over our enemies, because through faith in Jesus, we're already protected from the wrath to come. That wrath that, that this big fivefold taunt talks about, this wrath that Babylon deserves, and, and really, if we're honest, that everyone deserves. Because if we're honest, there's a little Babylon lurking in every single heart. There are times where every one of us seeks to take advantage of someone else or, or simply ignores or disobeys the Lord or, or wants our own name to be prized above everything else. And so that, that foaming cup of God's wrath that he promises to pour out on Babylon and all who are like them in the end, Jesus took that cup and drank it for us on the cross. You remember what he prayed in the garden. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup wasn't just an empty metaphor. That's the cup of the Old Testament, which is always filled with the wrath of God against sin. And Jesus prayed that if it could pass, it would, but nevertheless, your will, not my will. And on the cross, he took that cup and he drained it to the dregs. So that for those who believe in Jesus, there is no condemnation left. It has been fully exhausted on Christ in our place out of his love for us. And so the righteous who live by faith are not righteous because of their own covenant obedience. They're righteous because of Christ's covenant obedience for us and because of Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection for us, which is ours 
through steadfast faith in him. And so we can persevere. Even when God's promises don't make sense or or seem delayed, if God has done this in Christmas, fulfilling his promise, even taking the end and breaking into the present with it, if he's done that in Christmas, then we can trust him to keep his word for whatever else we face in life. As hard as your days might be right now, and each of us have a different story, as hard as that might be, as as sad or scary or confusing or frustrating as it might be, if Christ is your Savior, you have confidence that this will end well. Because we've seen the end, and it is good. You have confidence in Christ that this will end well. Therefore, as the author of Hebrews tells us, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, give us faith this Christmas, to trust you. Give us strength to persevere. Captivate us with your promises, Lord, your commitment to make all things new in the end, that we might follow the pattern of our Savior, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Lord, give us strength to persevere. And give us joy in the meantime. A joy that surpasses our situation and that rests squarely and supremely in your Son. Who brought your end time promises into the present by setting aside his glory and taking on human flesh that he might be with us as our Emmanuel to live for us the life that we were supposed to live but but couldn't and wouldn't, and to die for us the death we deserve, giving his life in exchange for ours out of love. Lord, fill us with joy this Advent season, that we might trust you more and more. And in the same way, we pray for those among us who are hurting right now, broken relationships or financial trials and strain, illness or injury. Lord, would you bring wholeness and healing to each one and give strength to persevere. Lord, we think specifically of those who need your healing touch physically for Jerry and Suki Cobb, for Amy Tsao, for Hannah Riffle, Karen Thompson, Stan Rideout, Adam Thompson's girlfriend Janine, Kevin Richards' stepfather, Deborah Welch's friend, Alba. Lord, would you meet and touch each one? 
and we think of those around the globe who are serving your cause on our behalf, Lord, especially of Bethany and Nick, uh, Nikki working with orphans in India, Lord. Would you shine the light of your Son among them? Lord, thank you that all of your promises find their yes in Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.